Well, this past week, as I was uh, preparing this sermon, I came across the uh, following quote. God does not make all new things. God makes all things new. And I'll say that one more time, because uh, I missed it the first time I read it. Uh, God does not make all new things. God makes all things new. So with that thought in mind, uh, that I'd like to begin my sermon, and uh, I'd also like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, for just a moment, I want you to imagine the Hollywood picture of heaven. I want you to imagine uh, the kind of things that Hollywood associates with heaven. And uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that if I hold up this picture, and, uh, and you can make out the fact that this is a cat, and this is a mouse, uh, then you can probably figure out that this is Tom and Jerry. And uh, there is an episode of Tom and Jerry from 1949 uh, believe it or not, uh, that captures the Hollywood picture of heaven perfectly. See, Tom is chasing Jerry. Uh, Tom is chasing Jerry uh, when a giant piano falls on top of him and smashes Tom flat as a pancake. That's when the, uh, the Hollywood picture of heaven begins to kick in. Uh, Tom's soul floats up out of his body a giant escalator descends from heaven, and he rides that escalator up into the sky. When he finally gets there, here's what you see. Clouds in every direction. A giant golden gate uh, that separates the inside and the outside of heaven, and a little man standing in a large booth, holding a book, looking up who gets to go to heaven— when they die. You see, it's the interaction between Tom and, uh, and this man that sets up the plot for the entire episode. It looks like you've spent your entire life chasing an innocent little mouse. The man in the booth says, you know, with a record like that, I just can't let you in. I'll let you uh, go and watch the episode uh, to see how it turns out. You can find it on YouTube uh, somewhere. But I think it illustrates the picture of the Hollywood picture of heaven, this place up in the sky, this place that your disembodied soul gets to go, and this place where if you've been a good little boy or a good little girl, you get to spend eternity enjoying perfection. I mean, any wish that you ever had, any hope that you ever made, anything that you ever wanted, it will be yours. You see, we see this picture all over the place. I mean, I think about movies like, uh, like Bruce Almighty or All Dogs Go to Heaven. And, you know, these movies, they don't, they don't pretend to give us the Christian vision of heaven. And so, you know, I'm genuinely not surprised when I watch them that Jesus isn't a part of it. And I'm not surprised that they make a, a claim that sounds a little strange to Christians, that, uh, that what we do is the thing that decides whether or not we'll get to spend eternity with our Lord. I mean, that's just not true. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know and who you trust. 
you know Jesus, you trust Jesus. But there's still something about the way that these pictures come together that, that complicate or confuse uh, my picture of heaven. I mean, uh, I mean, is heaven really about getting everything I ever wanted? You know, I know that, uh, I know that in heaven there's not going to be sin, so I'm not going to want the wrong kind of things. But why is it that when I think about this place, this is one of the first questions that comes to my mind? Or, uh, you know, what are we going to do when we get there? I mean, am I just going to sit on a cloud playing a harp with the Lord for eternity? And, and, and what do I do with the fact that a little part of me is afraid, maybe, that at some point, like, will I get bored of doing that? And, you know, I'm a pastor. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say that. And, you know, the questions, they go on and on. Imagine you got a bunch of questions, too. And uh, what I want to suggest today is that the Hollywood picture of heaven doesn't just get some of the details wrong. It presents those details in such a way that, that distract and in a lot of ways might just, might just cheat us out of the kind of hope, the kind of promise, the kind of thing that God has for us. So today's sermon, uh, it's going to look a little different uh, than my typical sermon. In today's sermon, I'm going to invite you to join me as uh, we weave our way through the three readings uh, that you just heard and discover God's vision for eternity. A picture that looks far deeper and much richer. That's not just about what you know, but about who you are and how you live and reveals the kind of hope that we have as people who know and follow Jesus. And so with all of that out of the way, I would invite you to pull out your bulletin and I'd open, invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 2. You know, if I, uh, if I could have included the first three chapters of the book of Genesis and gotten away with it, uh, I probably would have. Uh, but I'm assuming that you know some of the basic contours uh, that, that uh, for example, in six days, God creates the heavens and the earth. And it's worth pointing out uh, that the word for heaven or heavens in the Bible gets used in two different ways. It gets used to describe the sky and, and everything above the sky, the place where the moon and the planets and the stars are. And it gets used to describe the place where God is. You know, it's not to say that if you get into a rocket ship or a plane and you go up high enough, you're going to get to God. But it is to say that there's this connection and that connection is really powerful for people who lived before the 20th century when, when we couldn't do things like get into planes and rocket ships. Uh, because what it's saying is that the place where God is is as far removed from us as the heavens are from us. You see, this is where uh, the beginning of Genesis comes in. Because it wasn't always this way. You see, in the beginning, uh, in the book of Genesis, the place where where God is, the place where his creation are, they overlap. I mean, just look ahead at Genesis chapter 3. God is walking with the man in the cool of the garden. He's fully present in his creation, which is not to say that God is his creation, like God is an apple or God is in the apple, but it is to say that before the fall, the place where God is and the place where we are, they overlap. And here's the thing I want you to notice about the reading uh, that I had you open to just a moment ago. Uh, it's verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And why did God put the man in the Garden of Eden? 
He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. You see, before the fall, God gives us meaning and purpose. He, he puts us in this garden. He says, I made it. I'm present in it. But I want you to take care of it. So that's the picture in the beginning. We've got a good world. We've got a God who is present in his creation. And we've got these two humans who are given responsibility for taking care of the garden. It sounds really good. And that's when we mess everything up. See, God gives Adam and Eve a, a choice. And that choice is essentially, uh, will you trust my definition of good and evil? Will you follow me? Or will you demand independence? Will you demand the ability to define good and evil for yourself? And, and most of us know how that story goes. I mean, Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of, the, uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. But you see, we don't just know how this story goes because we read about it in the Bible. We know how this story goes because we live it each and every day. I mean, regularly, regularly, we demand the ability to do things on our terms and not God's. So we call original sin. And so there's this world, this place where God's space and our space overlap. But then, then we demand a place for ourselves, a place where the place we are is a place that God isn't. A place where we're not accountable a place where we, we don't submit, a place where we do whatever we want, whenever we want, and all of a sudden these two things that used to overlap don't overlap anymore. And it's not that we uh, kick God out of the garden. Instead, uh, the scriptures actually describe it a little differently. Paul writes this in uh, Romans chapter 1. He says, God gave them, God gave us, over to our sinful desires. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And so God lets us be alone. You know, the beautiful thing about uh, God that we discover in the scriptures is that he is not willing to let things stay this way. Now, uh, the temptation at this point in the story is to jump straight to Jesus, to go from Genesis chapter 2 and then hop all of the way to the New Testament. I mean, we broke God's good world, Jesus puts everything back together again, and then uh, we say amen and everybody gets to go home. But you see, if we do that, we miss the fact that God has been working since the very beginning to redeem and to restore his broken creation to redeem and restore humanity, us. And there are two uh, places that we see this very powerfully in the Old Testament. Uh, those two places are the tabernacle and the temple. And, uh, and here's what I want you to notice. We demanded a place where we are, but God is not. And yet in these two places in the Old Testament, uh, God promises, I'm going to show up nevertheless. 
Now, the tabernacle, it's, a, it's essentially a big tent. We learn about it in the book of Exodus. Uh, God has just formed his people. Now he's bringing them out of Egypt. And they're not special, except God chose them. I mean, they're broken, they're sinful. We know about that story. But as he's bringing them out of Egypt, he tells them to build this tent, this place where he's going to show up. And if you want to know what a temple is, a temple is essentially a permanent tabernacle. And there's just one temple uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites build it some four to five hundred years after they leave Egypt. And again, it's a place where God promises to show up. And here's the really cool thing about the tabernacle and the temple. I mean, if you're like a Bible nerd, you'll love this. The way that the scriptures describe the tabernacle and the temple is just like the Garden of Eden. You walk in there and there are pictures of fruit trees and there's carvings and embroidery there's flowers everything is made out of gold and so uh, it's a reminder for anyone who steps into one of these places that when you step into this place you are stepping it's like you're stepping into the garden of eden the place where god is and the place where you are they overlap and if you're an ancient israelite and you step into one of these places there's a problem for you. The problem is, uh, is this. You've got all of this junk in your life. You cheated your neighbor. You gossiped about your friend. And now you're going to enter into the presence of the Lord. Really? See, this is the place where uh, sacrifices and dead animals come in. You see, uh, the sin in your life it has to be dealt with. And the sacrifices... And the dead animals, they serve as a substitute for you. You walk into that place in the presence of the Lord, you're going to die. And so God says, take this animal. It will serve as your substitute. A reminder that the sin in your life is serious. And when that animal dies, it dies in your place and it allows you, or at least it allowed the Israelites to enter into the presence of the Lord. Now this, this goes on for hundreds of years. The problem of sin. The need for substitutes. It continues through the Old Testament, and it's still present when we enter the New Testament, and it reminds us that this is the world we live in. A world we broke. And it isn't to destroy the world and start over. God's solution isn't to make all new things. God's solution is to make all things. Gospel reading, you just heard. I mean, grab your bulletin. Flip to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 14. It's what I want you to notice. Uh, John writes this about Jesus. The word, Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And, you know, maybe you've heard this before, but the word for dwelling in, uh, in the Greek language uh, literally means tabernacle. I mean, Jesus is this little tabernacle, this little temple that is walking around, and, and he's the place where God's presence and God's creation overlap. And, and the, the story of Jesus is the story of God confronting and then conquering all of the sin that we created. Fifteen verses later, it's not in your reading, but fifteen verses later, uh, John the Baptist is going to see Jesus, and he's going to say, look, 
It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we know how lambs take away the sin. Lambs take away the sin by dying, by being a substitute. And 19 chapters later, this is exactly what Jesus does. He hangs on a cross. He dies in our place. You see, what the Gospels, what they, what they ask us to consider is that this is how God deals, how God conquers all the sin we created. He enters into his creation. He dwells among us, and then he takes all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the brokenness, all of the sin, all of it on himself. So that the sin that seeks to divide us would no longer do that. So that the place where he is and the place where we are might overlap. And at his resurrection, he gives us the assurance that this is actually going to happen. Now, at the beginning of my sermon, I said that uh, we were going to talk about God's vision for heaven. And you're probably sitting there thinking, we've been here all this time and we haven't done any of that. Well, it's because the story isn't over. We know that Jesus is going to return. We know that Jesus is going to raise the dead. We know that there's going to be a resurrection, a judgment, and a new creation. But, but the really cool thing is what happens before that. I think this is one of the ways that, that the Hollywood picture of heaven distracts us from what God does with his new creation. Because the place where God is and the place where we are when Jesus dies and rises again, they already begin to overlap. Not completely, not fully, but it actually begins to happen. I mean, on Pentecost, remember Pentecost? 50 days after the resurrection, God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Which, if you think about it, is kind of crazy. Because God's space and human space, they haven't overlapped since the Garden of Eden. And yet Paul writes couple decades later, 1 Corinthians, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? They're temples of the Holy Spirit because that's the victory that Jesus accomplished. Or, or maybe you're familiar with this passage, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Or some translations say, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, but the Greek is even less specific than that. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Which is not to say that sin is completely gone. I mean, that day is coming. We're just not there yet. Instead, it's to say that even before Jesus returns, we get a glimpse of what the new creation is like. In a few minutes, we're going to go up there and celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's one of the things that happens. We get a glimpse, a taste of the new creation. Where, where the things that divide us from God and us from each other, all the sin, all of it, is forgiven. Or maybe you've known someone who just has this, this peace that surpasses all understanding. A loved one dies. They lose their job. Tragedy strikes. And yet there's just this peace about them that surpasses all understanding. Paul would look at them and say, of course, new creation. They know that these things will not have power over them. Now, if we die before Jesus returns, 
uh, if we die before the resurrection, Jesus uh, gives us a picture of what happens. Happens when Jesus dies on the cross. A criminal is crucified next to him. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And maybe you remember how Jesus responds. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is the word that Jesus, or sorry, paradise is the word that the Greek language uses to describe the Garden of Eden. Today, you will be with me in the Garden. Today, before the resurrection, don't know how this works, it's a mystery, even though you don't have a body, today, you will be with me in my presence. I think it's kind of unfortunate because, uh, because this is the picture, at least this is a, a very poor version of the picture that Hollywood gives us when we think about the new creation. It's like this part that happens before the real part happens. And it's unfortunate because God's vision is so much bigger, so much grander, so much wider. Now, a number of years ago, now a little over 15 years ago, in the country of Mozambique, after a very bloody civil war, a number of Christians got together and, uh, and they put together this art installation. And uh, for this art installation, they took a bunch of guns that had been used to fight their civil war. A bunch of guns that had been used to kill their fellow citizens. And they cut them into pieces and they welded them into a giant tree. And that tree, uh, the tree was intended uh, to look like the tree of life that you find at the beginning of Genesis and at the end of Revelation. And the message of uh, these artists was essentially, God doesn't make all new things. God makes all things new. And that's the picture uh, that we get in our very last reading. We're not going to dig deep into it like the other ones, but listen to this. John has this revelation from the Lord about what it'll be like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The Greek language has two words for new. One word means new as in brand new or uh, new out of nothing, or new in time, but that's not the word that gets used here or at the end of Revelation. The word that gets used here means new, as in new in quality, or restored, or renewed. It's like a, a piece of furniture that gets brought back to life by restoring it. You see, this is the hope that we have as Christians. It's, it's the hope that we have in verse 3 and following. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them forever. In verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, this is God's vision for eternity. Not disembodied souls in the sky, not the Hollywood picture of heaven, but a renewed and restored creation. We're together with him. We live forever with meaning and purpose in a world without sin where we are his people and he is our God. This, this is the hope that we have.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.